Father, each day we experience the strength that you give us, the love that comes from the throne above. And Father, we are so grateful to you for the innumerable blessings that we experience physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every aspect of our lives. And we're thankful, Lord, that we can invite you to be present here during this hour, that you might guide our study of the Word, our prayer time together, that you might truly be worshipped and exalted. And, Father, that we might learn that which would further strengthen us for the service that you have for each one of us. Lord, we trust you for those of our membership that are gone, that are traveling, that are on vacation, that you might minister to each one, keep them in safety, and bring them back to us uh, with new refreshing of mind and body and ability to contribute in many ways to your ministry. We just uh, ask for your special blessing upon the word as it's being proclaimed in the auditorium even during this uh, same hour that you might be honored there too. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 27, beginning at verse 18. We've begun to look at probably one of the best remembered stories of the Old Testament narrative, the tricking or deception that Rebekah and Jacob brought upon Isaac. And so they have made their plans, and now we read the execution of it in these verses. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please, sit, and eat of my game, that you may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, How is it that you, ha that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac his father. And he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. And he also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Quite a drama. I don't know if you can portray what it would look like on the motion picture screen, but if they stuck to the script, it could be very dramatic and very tension-filled in many ways. It's very interesting, I think, the exchange of words in that first verse of the passage, verse 18, where he said, then he came to his father and he said, 
my father. So he's, of course, introducing himself, and, and the sound of his voice is traveling through the tent. And Isaac responds, here I am. Who are you, my son? <laughs> now that seems like a very strange response, isn't it? Doesn't it? Who are you, my son? It's, of course, based on the fact that he was expecting Esau. Because Esau was the only one, as far as, as Isaac understood, who was party to this little uh, uh, transaction which they had made together. He had probably smelled the meat cooking. You know, tents aren't exactly uh, airproof and uh, wafting around there. He probably heard, uh, smelled the meat cooking, but the voice, something about the voice. All he said was, my father at first, and of course then he asked him who he was. He said, I am Esau, your firstborn. So enough of the voice was coming through that something was not computing. Now we remember that Isaac is basically blind. And we're all familiar with the fact that when one, now this isn't always true, sometimes all of our senses go, but sometimes when one sense goes, other senses are heightened because we put our attention into them more. If, if, we, if we're losing our eyesight, we begin to depend more on our hearing and therefore we concentrate a little bit more on our hearing or the touch or the smell or whatever it might be. So his, his hearing is, is maybe a little bit more acute, at least more attention is going to his hearing. I think Jacob probably tried to imitate Esau's voice, but there wasn't any way he could mask his own to make it sound like Esau's when his father was concentrating as he was on the sound of the voice since he could not see the man who was before him. And he knew there was something not right about the voice. His, his computer was saying, this is the wrong timber here. It's not the right voice. So he decides, because there's question in his mind, to put other senses to the test. Now, Jacob, you remember, had foreseen this when his mother said, well, you know, this is what we should do. And he thought, I'll be dead in the water if he calls me over and, and touches me and smells me and discovers who I really am. And so she had made the plan, of course, to put uh, the hide of the kids on, on him so that he would be disguised and put Esau's garment on him so that he would smell as Esau would smell. And so Jacob does, and I'm sure Jacob came with great fear and trepidation. Now, I think it took him a little while to get to his father because he was trembling, I think, inside. Because would the disguise work or not? And so as Jacob came near, Isaac touched him, touched the back of his hands uh, at least, and smelled the smell of his garment. And he chose to believe what he could smell and what he could feel, rather than believe the fact that the voice was not right. It was his choice to make that decision based on those, that, that input rather than the one that was causing him question. He had lingering doubt, though, obviously, because he asked him, are you really my son Esau? Now, can you imagine Jacob's thinking at this point? <laughs> He's not really convinced. Yes, I am Esau. Notice that in uh, verse 20, he comes very close to blasphemy. Isaac said to him, 
How is it that you have it so quickly? How, how come you've brought the game so quickly, my son? I mean, you've had to go out in the field. You've had to hunt. What was the, was the deer just outside the tent door or what? You know? and, and you've brought it. And he says, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. When you start telling a lie, it's one thing. But when you start invoking the name of God in your lie, it's extremely dangerous. Notice how he puts it, the Lord your God. He doesn't say the Lord my God, which, of course, is an appropriate response if he's trying to be Esau, because obviously Yahweh was not Esau's God. Esau worshipped Esau, and Esau alone did he worship. I think that Isaac was uneasy in the first place because he knew that what he was doing was not right. He knew that he was pushing his own favorite son ahead in spite of the fact that that favorite son was not walking with the God that Isaac himself worshipped. And I think that he may have thought, it's just my uneasiness that's making me jumpy and making me think that it's not Esau here. And I think that contributed to his willingness to accept the man as Esau. I think it seemed like an eternity to Jacob before Isaac finally said, okay, bring the food to me. <laughs> I think Jacob was about ready to uh, you know, just melt away in his garment there. And his mother was probably extremely nervous behind the tent wall there, listening to what was going on. And I'm sure she was, even though it doesn't say so here. Well, the final proof would be in the pudding, so to speak, or I suppose in the venison, uh, as he would taste it and discover, is this really the food which I love? Well, Rebecca, if anyone, knew how to make it uh, perfect for him. And so the food was excellent. He was convinced that this was, therefore, the right thing. But he had one little test left to, come, to, to put forward. Come, my son, and kiss me. Now, he wasn't primarily concerned with the kiss. He is primarily concerned with the smell. Will he again, it, will my senses be again confirmed in the belief that this is Esau? Come and kiss me. Obviously, to come and kiss him, he would have to come right next to him. He could smell him. He took a, a lungful there, and he converted this test immediately into the blessing. He was satisfied. He was satisfied that this was his son Esau, and therefore, he went ahead and pronounced the blessing upon Jacob. I think it's important for us to believe that an oral blessing made by the patriarch upon the one who was to be the upcoming patriarch was tantamount in that society to having written a legal contract or any other uh, thing of legal standing. It was irreversible, in other words. Once it had been proclaimed, it was out there, and it could not be retracted. And that's really a key to understanding this passage here, because otherwise we could say, well, what's the big deal? You know, he was defrauded, therefore it doesn't count, so he could just exit out and then bless Esau. No, couldn't be done that way. And Esau will find that out uh, the hard way. What we have here is the transfer of the mantle. The mantle of patriarchal leadership is being transferred from the one who has been clan chief for these years to the one who is going to be clan chief in the future. And so here we have the official transfer of power. We might wonder why uh, Isaac would feel that this transfer could be made with nobody present but the two who were 
in power, Isaac and, and uh, supposedly Esau. Why would he not call in a whole court or company of people to witness the transfer of power? Well, we know the reason, because he was trying to sneak one up on, sneak one past Jacob and Rebekah. He felt, it appears, that God as his witness was sufficient. Unfortunately for Isaac, the significance here was in the fact that this was also a transfer of spiritual leadership. It was not just the transfer of the political, temporal, economic power from Isaac to what he thought Esau, but it was also the transfer of spiritual leadership. And this is where the great breakdown came uh, in, this, uh, in carrying this out. The blessing was a serious matter. And God saved Isaac from carrying out his disobedient act. God does sometimes directly intervene and prevent us from violating his principles and laws and commands. Not always, but sometimes he actually directly intervenes, as he did here. Now, he's mostly intervening in the result, not in actually preventing an act which Isaac thought he was doing in spite of God, it would seem. God could have intervened in his own way. He could have carried out and he would have. He had already prophesied that the elder will serve the younger. This being so, God could not have allowed the official blessing to have made upon, been made upon Esau. What would God have done? Well, we, we don't know what God would have done because God wasn't allowed to do it, so to speak. Now, he could have. He could have foiled Rebekah's plan at any point because it was a very dangerous plan. He could have convinced uh, Isaac that, no, the voice is wrong, that squeeze that skin a little bit and see if it comes off, you know? Is this really human? Any one of many things could have happened which would have foiled the plan. But God did not allow the plan to be foiled. Why not? Why did God allow Rebekah's plan to succeed? What, since it was God's will, that this is, was the, to be the result, does the end justify the means? Most of us are familiar with Niccolo Machiavelli, who in the 16th century wrote a, a work called The Prince, in which he studied the lives of uh, some of the rulers of the Papal States, particularly uh, Caesar Borgia, and he determined that what really works is what is good and what is right. Not what is necessary ethical or moral, but what works that's right. And of course, that seems to be the way our government's heading very quickly today. And many princes through history have taken Niccolo Machiavelli as basically their, their icon, their, the one they're going to follow. And the prince has become a widely read book amongst particularly dictators in the world. The ends justify the means, Machiavelli boldly stated. If you succeed, however you succeed is immaterial as long as you succeed. The only sin is in not succeeding. God does not function that way, as we well know. The scripture says it completely opposite to that. The ends do not justify the means. The means are as important as the ends in God's economy. So God is not allowing the ends here to justify the means. 
But God in his sovereignty has chosen to allow his people to make choices, even if those choices violate his moral nature. Even if we violate the laws of God, the commandments of God, he allows us to make those choices as his people. Now, in this case, both Isaac and Rebekah were wrong. Both were sinning. Both were not putting their faith and hope and trust and obedience in God here. They were humanly approaching the situation. But if you want to measure things, Isaac's sin is the greater sin. Isaac's sin is the greater sin because he is in blatant disobedience to the revealed word of God. God had said that the elder will serve the younger. This was a prophecy that God had made. And Isaac knew that, but he was going to try to bring about the opposite if he could. Rebekah, of course, her sin is in running ahead of God, not in trusting God, not in believing God can do it. I don't have to try to manipulate it. And obviously there was deceit involved. There was lying involved. This is not of God. Now, I'm not saying by this that God goes with the lesser sin and, and you know, tries to put down the greater sin. Uh, God is accomplishing his will in spite of human effort and human intervention. This does not excuse the lying and the deceit. All will stand responsible. And you and I, and I'll emphasize this as we go along, you and I will see that everyone involved, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau, all will pay the price of violating God's express word. Now the blessing is given specifically in verses 27 to 29. Let me just read that again. Verse 27, halfway through. See the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. The first part of the blessing focuses on material things. Things which, of course, were of such importance to Esau. That was the part of the blessing, of course, that he would have most desired. That he would have the abundance of grain and new wine and the fatness of the earth and that he could just spend the rest of his life delighting himself in the hunt and not having to be responsible for anything. But Isaac's emphasis is upon the Lord as the provider. It is the Lord who gives the dew, the fatness of the earth, the abundance of grain and the abundance of new wine. It is the Lord who provides that. See, you, you could see where the emphasis between the two men would have been different. I, Esau would have heard it as, oh, all these good things are going to be mine now. Whereas Isaac was emphasizing the fact that it would be the Lord. He's trying to, you know, in effect, he would have been trying to wake up his son Esau. It is God who provides this son. Wake up, boy. You have to believe in the God that I serve. He knew his son didn't. And it was a pain to him. 
but not enough of a pain to keep him from trying to go ahead and push his son into the preeminent position. He wanted his son to recognize the lordship of Yahweh. What does this tell us? It tells us something about the heart of Isaac. And, and what it tells us is something that we see probably in ourselves. Deep down inside, we want to serve the Lord. But sometimes we don't do it very well. Sometimes we, we miss the boat over here. We don't trust God here. We, we actually will blatantly violate God's express word. Yet we do want to serve him. And, and, and that's what we see in Isaac. And I think it's what we see in Rebekah and Jacob too, not in Esau. In this, of course, they, in, in this, they serve as a great example to us. <laughs> example of, of what we are as human beings and an example of what we ought not to allow to reign in our lives. The heart of the blessing, of course, is in verse 29. Well, that's not the way Esau would have seen it, except in part, I suppose, as being lord over it all and ruling over the clan. He would have enjoyed that part of it too. But not only is there conferring of authority here and, and clan leadership, but implied is the spiritual leadership, the priesthood, if you will, of the clan, which Esau would not have given one thought to had this been the blessing upon him. How could he? He didn't even know the God that he would have supposedly led the clan to follow. It expresses in here that it says in the second part of verse 29, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, of course, his mother only had two sons. <laughs> One was Esau and the other was Jacob. What this is implying, of course, is Esau or Isaac felt that he was very close to death and he could die any moment. And if he died, maybe Rebecca would marry somebody else. And after all, his mother didn't have him until she was 100, I mean 90. Uh, so it's very possible Rebecca could have other children. And of course, beyond that, it could also be an implication of other male relatives too, uh, such as Laban's sons. Whatever was in Isaac's thinking is not terribly clear here, but the, the leadership concept is what is being expressed specifically here. Now, he was convinced he was blessing Esau. Notice how blatant he is, therefore, in his attempt to counteract God's word. God had said the elder will serve the younger. And yet he is specifically saying to the one he thinks is Esau, be master of your brothers. And that's as clear and blatant as it can be. The final words of the blessing, cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you come directly from God, God's promise to Abraham when God first called Abraham. And you go back to the 12th chapter and, and we have that first uh, specified encounter between God and Abraham. This was part of the Abrahamic blessing. Cursed be those who curse you. Blessed be those who bless you. And, and that was a statement that seems to be part of the Abrahamic covenant throughout history. God ordained that Jacob should be the next uh, patriarch. And Isaac was unwittingly giving that blessing to the one that God had chosen. God says, I will not be mocked. He will accomplish his purpose. He will bring about his sovereign plan no matter how we or any human being attempts to thwart it because that's implicit in the very word sovereign. 
If we believe in a sovereign God, this means God rules. God rules the universe. He accomplishes His will. There are scriptures which tell us that man purposes to do this and that, but it's in God that the accomplishment comes. God is bringing about His perfect will in spite of all of the efforts of Isaac to, to prevent it and uh, of Rebekah and Jacob to really mess it up. I mean, that wasn't with their intent, but that's surely what could have happened. Verse 30, Now it came about, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently, and he said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me, so that I ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry. He said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. He said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. He said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one little teeny blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice, and he wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of the heaven above, from above, and by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck." What does he receive instead of a blessing? He receives a prophecy. Hmm. Can you imagine, now, you know, it's, it isn't expressed here, but with our, with our sanctified imagination, we can just picture what it was like. Jacob has now left. Esau has made the venison into that savory dish, and he's brought it into his father. Can you imagine what's going through Rebekah and Jacob's mind? They've got to be on pins and needles, so to speak, in the midst of this whole encounter. Because, first of all, before Jacob was out of there, while Isaac was eating, and you know, I'm, cert I'm certain he savored his food, and he ate the bread, and he drank the wine, and he had a good time. And Jacob was probably saying, eat it up, Dad. Get this stuff down. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I mean, Esau may come back any minute, and I'm dead in the water. It was a close call, really. Again, God could have intervened. God could have had Esau back an hour before he'd gotten back, or he could have kept him out for a day. You know? 
How hard was it to catch a fallow deer or a roe deer or some form of gazelle? Well, you know, most of us think of gazelles as being pretty fast. Even most deer. I mean, he wasn't hunting this deer with a 30-30. He was hunting it with a bow and arrow, not even a crossbow. So, you know, what could have been the time frame? Obviously, he normally didn't come back too quickly. That's why Isaac responded, how come you're here so quickly with the food, my son? He wasn't expecting him that soon. He had just left Isaac's tent when Esau showed up. Now, Esau could have walked by and seen Jacob leaving the tent, and Esau would have said, what have you been doing? Especially carrying the dish, you know, with the remnants of the meal and everything. But that didn't happen. Isaac, uh, Jacob got out of the way, completely off the scene before Esau came tooling by. It was a close call, though. I think Rebecca and Jacob made themselves very scarce all of a sudden. They found other things to do in another part of the camp right about then because they weren't too interested in what was going to happen next. Well, they were very interested in it, but they were afraid of what was going to happen next. Well, it took a while because Esau had to, whether he'd already dressed out the game before he brought it or not, probably, but nevertheless, he had to prepare it. He had to cook it. How long did it take to, to, to roast this venison and, and make it palatable for his father and, and to make all the sauce and everything with it? with it. I don't know. Didn't have microwaves or, you know, convection ovens or anything in those days. So it certainly took a while for that to happen. They were very fearful of what was going to happen when it was finally discovered, because it would be discovered by Isaac that the one that had been in there was not Esau. The axe would fall, and they were fearful. Put yourself in Esau's sandals. His father had commanded him, go out catch some game, prepare it for me, such as I love, and I'm going to bless you, my son. Esau, too, thought he was going to pull one over. He was going to get the jump on Jacob. He'll fix Jacob. Jacob tricked him out, he thinks, tricked him out, of his uh, birthright, uh, but he's going to get the blessing. And to him, the blessing was apparently more important than the birthright. And so... He comes into the tent with great anticipation. His heart's going thumpity, thumpity, thumpity. You know, this man's going to bless me, and I'm going to get what I've been wanting all along, the patriarchal blessing. This would put Jacob and Rebekah in their place. I'm sure Esau thought that. Proudly, he announced his presence. Dad, I'm here with the meat that you love. Think of the impact of those words upon Isaac. Verse 31. Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac just had blessed Esau, he thought. He was already full of savory food. I think those words fell on his ears like a sledgehammer. That's the voice of Esau. I know that voice. That is Esau's voice. And his mind, I'm sure, was suddenly filled with all kinds of contradictory thoughts. But I've just blessed Esau. But this is Esau. Who was that? Who is this? He feared the answer. I think he was trembling as he said, Who, who are you? And when the, the voice confirmed that this was Esau, it was not the answer he wanted. 
And we see that because what is, how does it describe him here? He was absolutely overcome by emotion. He knew a catastrophe had just occurred. He shook uncontrollably. What, what does it say there? Then Isaac, verse 33, trembled violently. It says literally, trembled with a very great trembling. I mean, it wasn't just like a, well, who is this? I mean, he was shaking so violently that he could hardly stand up or sit up or whatever it was he was doing. He was totally overwhelmed, just viewing the whole thing as a great catastrophe. His carefully laid plans had gone totally awry. All he could think of was that his wife and his younger son had tricked him into doing exactly the opposite of what he had planned to do. You know, it's, it's really, I suppose, to some degree, hard for us to put ourselves in, in this man's place and think about the fact that he had carefully laid these plans in his mind. How long had he thought about doing this? I don't think it was just a last-minute thing. Oh, by the way, Esau, why don't you go kill some game and I'll bless you. Uh, I think he had thought about this. He'd pondered about it. I don't think he had prayed about it, but he had certainly pondered about it. And he carefully laid his plans. He made sure that nobody else was involved except Esau. At least that's what he thought. That's one of the problems of being blind, amongst others. But all that he had planned turned out to be exactly the reverse of what he had hoped. I think at the same time there was a barb of conviction. The Holy Spirit of God began clear back in Genesis, the first chapter, to hover over the face of the deep. And the Holy Spirit of God has been at work throughout history, touching hearts and lives. And this was God's man, Isaac. And so there was a channel for God to reach him. And I think there was a barb driven into his heart, a barb of conviction. You've done wrong, man. And God has intervened. You have attempted to betray your sacred trust as the covenant man. The blessing was not his to give to whomever he wished. The blessing was his to transfer to the one that God chose. There is a big difference. He was, in effect, trying to play God. I am going to make Esau the blessed one because I love him more. Trying to play God. This, of course, is not only foolish, it's extremely dangerous. However, God saved him from his folly. God does that so often. He saves us from our folly. But he would pay the price for the attempt. God may save us from our, uh, our folly, but he does not change the eternal rule that whatsoever you sow, you shall reap. That will follow. And it does follow in this man's life. Because if you think about Isaac now, he thought he was dying, but he wasn't dying. He had at least 30 to 40, maybe 50 years left. Now, most of us, we think, whoa, <laughs> you know, for most of us, that's more years than any of us have. Hopefully not for all of us in this room, but, uh, you know, for most of us, that's probably more. And what do we hear about Isaac after this time? Basically, nothing. He is basically set on the shelf. He no longer is the primary instrument of God's blessing upon this earth after this moment. 
The story transfers to Jacob and stays with Jacob. About all we hear about Isaac after this is that he dies. And that's many, many years later. In effect, because of his effort to willfully disobey God, God just simply shunts him aside and now works through the man who was the chosen covenant man to replace him. Didn't have to be that way, but I think it was part of the fruit of his own actions. Let's, let's turn to that well-known passage in, in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul is speaking about this subject of being set aside. Let's, let's back up. I have 26 and 27, but let's read that, the whole paragraph there being at 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I buffet my body, I, I discipline my body, and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul knew that if we didn't keep ourselves under God's discipline, if we didn't serve Him actively and in obedience to Him, we, we could be sidetracked. We could literally be set up on the shelf because God isn't going to be able to work through us because we're not an open channel for Him to accomplish His will. And, and as Isaac has put himself right in the path of what God wanted to do, God had to remove him from the path and basically put him up on the shelf and let him, in effect, languish for the next third of, of his life or so. Uh, we don't know all the details of that. God set him aside, it would seem. The scripture makes it very clear that we have to discipline ourselves in order to be obedient. And that's what Paul is saying here. Obedience doesn't just come naturally. I'm a Christian, therefore I naturally obey. The old flesh hasn't been totally removed from us. You know, scripture talks about us uh, taking up the cross and following Jesus. Scripture teaches crucifying our, ourselves. The words of Jesus and the words of Paul. Discipline is necessary, and discipline is hard. For most of us, discipline is hard in, in just simple little areas of life, let alone in spiritual areas where you have not only your whole flesh, which tends to uh, fly against that, but the world and the devil too. It's not popular to be disciplined. And, and, and we have to always bear in mind that walking faithfully God is not automatic. It doesn't just happen because we call ourselves a Christian. And we're all, I'm sure, quite aware, well aware of that. We, if, if we just, it reminds me of the old song, you know, we are happy as can be doing what comes naturally. What comes naturally? Is it serving God? No. Serving God does not come naturally. It's the result of discipline. It's the result of choice. Our choice. If we're found in open disobedience to the clear will of God, this forces him to set us aside, maybe not permanently, but at least maybe for a period of time. And uh, our lives will, will seem to languish as, as a result. I think it's important for us to keep this passage before us, and I'm sure most of us do. But this passage in James 4 is really, I've found it to be one of the passages I, I turn to more often than any other passage of Scripture. 
because it seems to deal with where the rubber meets the road. James 4, 7, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, that is, your, your worldly pleasures, be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom, literally, repentance. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Draw near to God. Submit to God. Humble ourselves to God. These are things you don't hear a lot today. This isn't preached from many pulpits of this land today. Today we have self-esteem preached from the pulpit. You know. You've got to think of yourselves rightly. If you don't think of yourself rightly, you're, you're going to be down on yourself, and you're going to be uh, uh, putting uh, on yourself things that don't belong there, and you'll have a wrong attitude, and this and that and the other. And, and to some degree, yes, that's true. But the scripture is really strong about submitting to God, humbling ourselves before God, bowing the knee before Jesus Christ, resisting the evil one. There's a reality here, a kind of a hard reality that to me is, is just really practical that we need to keep before our eyes because we can try to go through all these processes of, of self what do I want to say, self-improvement. And if we fail to include this truth, uh, we're not going to be self-improved at all, except maybe in the eyes of the world, but not in the eyes of God. If we want to be in the cutting edge of God's kingdom, and I think every one of us does, each one of us certainly wants to be where God is at work, right? We want to be in a church where God is moving. We want to be in a family where we see God's work happening. We don't want to just stand by and see it happening somewhere else all the time. We want to be where it's happening. And that's how we are on the cutting edge. When we make these truths of Scripture realities in our lives, and we constantly remind ourselves of these truths and discipline ourselves in believing. There, there are many who believe that if you do the don'ts, of the Word of God that you're a good Christian, you know? You don't beat your neighbor, you don't kick your dog, you, you don't commit adultery, you don't commit fornication, you don't steal. As long as you do the don'ts, that you're a good Christian. But Christianity, as you read through the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament too, is, is not so much not doing what God says not to do, but it's doing what God says to do. There, the world views Christianity as a negative thing. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't have any fun. You know, have a long face, wear black, and never laugh. Which, of course, is a, is a, a very wrong stereotype of those who supposedly did this, such as the Puritans. I mean, they weren't like that at all. But that's what they've been stereotyped as. But it's a religion of positive faith. It, it's what we do. You know, if we love the brothers... We're showing forth the reality of Christ. The positive things that we do. Let me read a verse. It's not on your outline, but a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 1 that shows the two together. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. 
cease to do evil. Okay, these are negative things. You know, don't do this, don't do that. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. These are positive things. These are things where we reach out and do something that advances the kingdom. Our, our job, you know, sometimes we talk about, we read the scripture that tells us that the gates of hell will not impact the church. The, the church will not be stopped by the gates of hell. But when you think about that, what are gates for? Have you ever been attacked by a gate? Well, maybe if you had some kind of electronic gate you have, I don't know. <laughs> but you're not usually attacked by a gate. A gate is a defensive thing. A gate is built there to keep an enemy out. So the gates of hell aren't there to, to attack you. The gates of hell are trying to defend hell from the advancement of the kingdom of God. So as we do these things in obedience to God, we're on the cutting edge of the kingdom, and it's hell that's on the defense, defensive. And, and you, we've, we've talked about the 12th chapter of Romans so often, the latter half of it, which constantly instructs us what it means to be a true Christian. What, it, what does it mean to be a disciple, a, a follower of God? There are some things where it says, and, and don't do this and don't do that, but what are all the positive things in there? It tells us to do this and to do that. You, know, you take that 12th chapter of Romans, and it can be your guidebook, my guidebook, for how we walk in the Christian life. Interesting how Isaac answers his own question here. He knew who had been there. Does he accept it? Yeah, he actually does. Because he says, yes, and he shall be blessed. He could have said, the dirty, rotten kid, curse him. No. He says, yes, and he shall be blessed because he knew that God was in it in spite of all he attempted to do. Now, we'll end with this. Think of Esau's spirit. He came in on the mountaintop, and he is sent into the abyss instantaneously. His spirit just drops like a rock into the emotional Grand Canyon, if you will. And the scripture says, describes his cry of anguish, literally the words are, exceeding great and bitter cry. Not just, oh dear. I mean, this guy went into the great depths of depression instantaneously. In the midst of his anguish, he asked his father for a blessing. He hoped that his father could retract the blessing. After all, it was gotten by deception. So just cancel it out, Dad, and give it to me. This young man was so woefully, totally spiritually blind. He didn't know one thing spiritually. He was deadhead spiritually. And Isaac knew that it could not be retracted. And so he says, what is there to give you, my son? And we'll look at this next week. He does not give his son a blessing. Instead, God speaks a prophecy through him, and he prophesies as to what will happen. And we'll look at scripture that shows how exactly that was fulfilled. Exactly that was fulfilled concerning Esau.